Okay, for the last eight weeks, we've been looking at the life of Jesus. And last two weeks, we've looked at this passage of Scripture that talked about the last time Jesus sat down and had a meal with his disciples. He would, they were celebrating the Passover, the most important religious holiday in Judaism, celebrating Moses and the Israelites being set free from slavery, over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. So it's a huge holiday. So Jesus gathered his disciples together, and they're having a special meal that they celebrated for hundreds of years. But Jesus changed the meeting, which would have been huge. It would have been uh, confusing. It would have been uh, disturbing to these disciples because they came to celebrate Moses, (laughs) and Jesus was going to change that. And so we're going to read the passage and celebrate together, uh, as they would have done, with us knowing the new meaning, and then we'll pick up the story where we left off last week, where Jesus died on a cross. So the text reads like this. As they were eating, Jesus and the disciples, Jesus took some bread and blessed it, unleavened bread. (laughs) And then he broke it in pieces, disciples, but here's the strange part, disturbing part. He says, take this bread, this is my body, or this represents my body. It's like saying this ring represents my marriage. And they partook together. Of course, they didn't understand this. They said, wait a minute, this is the bread that the... You know, the Israel, this represents the bread the Israelites had before they left Egypt. So the meal went on. Eventually, Jesus takes a cup of wine, and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he gave it, passed it out, and they all drank from it. But then the significance is the words that Jesus said to them, this is my blood, or this represents my blood. Jesus, it's getting kind of gory. What are you talking about? Well, he says, this confirms the covenant of the new covenant, new agreement, new contract between God and his people. What are you talking about, new? And then he says, it's poured out. I'm pouring my out. I'm sacrificing my life. I'm giving my life as a sacrifice, not just for Jews, but for everyone, for many. And so they partook not understanding. The text said after that, the meal was over. They left, went outside to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus prayed, and then he was arrested. And so we're going to take up the story there. And today's, in this series, as you're not far, we're going to start with the topic, unstoppable. We've been talking about the kingdom of God's not far, which means it's near. (laughs) Uh, And it's a... uh, available to everyone, but today's topic is unstoppable. I want to start with a a paradox or dilemma. Uh, We have a physics professor in our first service, and I was talking to him about this. So what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? So, Pastor, what are you talking about? Well, the immovable object you and I have to deal with is something we call sin or wrongdoing. And if you object to that word, we all have 
standards that we can't even reach. I have standards I don't reach. You know, I want to be a better person. I want to do better things, and I don't do it. So none of us reach our own standards, much less God's standards, which are higher. So I see sin as an immovable force. <clears throat> I can't get rid of it. Um, in fact, worst of all, sometimes uh, we defend it, don't we? There's certain sins that I call them pet sins, sins that we don't think are bad or we convince ourselves aren't bad, but the Bible would say otherwise or God would say otherwise. And so sin is what nailed Jesus to a cross. He sacrificed his life to pay for sin. No one took his life away from him. He and so it, sin killed Jesus, and sin kills you and I. That's why you and I are going to die one day, right? And it kills other things. It kills relationships, and it kills our health, and it kills uh, other things in our life. So Jesus died on a cross. Was he unstoppable? No, it certainly didn't look like it when he breathed his last breath on the cross. So, to review a little bit, we've been studying this character, Jesus, not any Jesus, but Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago. That's the northern part of Israel. Now, he's not telling the story. He's the main character, but he's not telling the story. A guy by the name of Simon Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, probably 30 years later, after the crucifixion, uh, he's getting close to, to death of old age, and he's wanting to recount or have a record of, I call it his journal or his memoirs of his time with Jesus. And probably couldn't write it himself, so he had a, someone write it for him. And scholars believe it was John Mark. We call it what he wrote, the Gospel of Mark, because Mark actually penned it. But it's Jesus' story. Now, significant to most of us is that John Mark is a, not a Jew. Now, I'm not a Jew, and most of you probably aren't Jew. So he's coming from a non-Jewish perspective, which is important to me because that, that's the way I'm, perspective I'm coming from. And something really important that I'm going to talk about a little bit more later was this. Was he writing the Bible? Was Peter saying, I'm, I want you to write the Bible? No. Uh, the, as we're going to see, the Bible didn't ha come along for a long time. So Mark was writing what? What Peter told him about Peter's experiences. So he was... Documenting Peter's experience with Jesus. No idea that it would be, hundreds of years later, it would be the Bible. It would be like if I dictated my memoirs to somebody, <laughs> and three or four hundred years later, somebody decides to put it together in some book with some other writings and call it the Bible. All right? I'm not important enough to do that, but that was the situation here. So, Jesus died on the cross. Peter's documenting it. And when Jesus died, we need to understand this. We're, we're after the fact. But at the time, hope died. The disciples and his other followers, they hoped he was going to be the Messiah who set up his earthly kingdom and get rid of the Romans and they could truly celebrate Passover because they'd be free, free from Roman rule. So the hope was dead because Jesus was dead. So there was no Christians no Jesus followers. There's no Jesus to follow if he's dead. There's no Christians if there's no Christ. So apparently, on that Friday, Jesus was not who he claimed to be. 
Now, people didn't follow Jesus because of his great teaching, even though they were great. And sometimes he told parables, and people didn't even understand them. And we're going to look at one next week. You want to join us? He actually explains it for us, so hopefully I can get it right. But sometimes they didn't understand his teaching, as great as they were. He did miracles, but other people had done miracles. The reason they followed Jesus was the claims he made. He claimed to be the Messiah, and that the Israelites have been looking for the Messiah for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, and, and finally, he's come, and they had this belief that, that Jesus was it. And so that's why they followed him. And he made a outrageous claims. He said he was the Messiah. He was God. He was greater than the temple. He was greater than the law. And you would think nobody would have followed him. But with the hope that he truly was telling the truth, the disciples followed him. And when he died on that cross, he had no more disciples. He had no more believers. He had no more followers. They believed they were wrong, like many other false messiahs that come along, and, and nothing happened, and evidently Jesus was just one of many. <clears throat> and they believed Jesus was going to stay dead, just like, you know, when one of us dies, we expect that person to stay dead. So who was actually happy that day? Well, the religious leaders were. They finally got rid of this thorn in, the, in their side, this Jesus that the crowd loved so much. The Romans, because, uh, you know, hopefully it was going to be peaceful now. Things were under control. And, of course, in the spiritual realm, Satan and his followers, they were delighted. They were cheering. They had killed God's son. But something happened. Something happened that changed everything. So we're going to look at three words, and it's critical that we get these in the right order because some of you watching or some of you here may say, eh, I don't know if I believe this because it's in the Bible and there's a lot of other silly stuff in the Bible that I can't believe. So here's, here's three uh, terms that you and I need to make sure we get in the re uh, right sequence. Otherwise, it does seem confusing, and, and it may be easy not to believe. So first we have an event, we call that event the resurrection, that comes first, then the movement, or we would call Christianity, or the church, came second, and only later, 350 years later, the movement, the church had existed that long without the Bible. So consequently, <laughs> we know about the event. People have been following Jesus of the event, not because the Bible. People make the argument, well, the only reason we know about this is because, about the resurrection, because the Bible is how we know, right? Some people that may object. But the Bible is how we know about the resurrection. No, it isn't. <laughs> Christianity knew about it for 350 years without what we call a Bible. Now, it's fantastic that eventually they collected not one, but four accounts of Jesus' life, the life of the early church, some writings of a guy named Paul, and writings uh, of other writers, Peter and James. We'll look at something, Peter. Uh, bring that next slide up, please. 
So the Bible didn't create Christianity. It existed for hundreds of years before there was a Bible. The resurrection created Christianity. And the eyewitnesses of hundreds of people, some are recorded in the Bible. Now, my wife objected to this statement, but I said, I think it's important. The resurrection is the only reason Jesus' story is worth telling. Otherwise, he was just another preacher, another miracle worker. Um, he didn't, wasn't able to die in, in, in our place for our sins because he died. Um, but they had proof. They had eyewitnesses, hundreds of eyewitnesses to believe. So with that understanding, we're going to pick up the story where he left off last week. Jesus had just died on a cross. So this is in Mark. We're studying the Gospel of Mark, Peter's account. Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. This is a huge risk because <laughs> he was an honored member of the high council. Remember last week there were 71 of these guys? So this would be kind of like the... I'm trying to think in our culture, like the Senate on the, on the uh, political side, and it would be like uh, a group of cardinals, if you're Catholic, on the religious side. That's how important these people were. And he was one of them, but you certainly don't want to side with, quote, unquote, your enemy. <laughs> they had just agreed as a group to kill this Jesus, and they, they succeeded. So he risked his whole reputation, his position, on the fact that he went and asked for Jesus' body. But he, like many, were waiting for the kingdom of God to come, and they thought, of course, Jesus was going to usher that in. But he was dead. But still, to honor him, he wanted to, to, to do something uh, for Jesus' body. Because what would normally happen to somebody's body it was nailed to a cross? Well, they had the trash dump outside the city, and the body would be taken there, and some stones thrown over it. Now, the interesting thing is, how would you know if it was resurrected if it was under some stones? But, of course, that's not what happened. And Joseph comes along and asks. He, he, you can tell how he's important. He got access to Pilate. So, text goes on. Well, Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead. What, it was about six hours? So, he called for a Roman officer. He wasn't going to take Joseph's word for it, and ask if he had died yet. Of course, the Romans were good at killing people, especially by crucifixion. And so the officer confirmed that, yes, Jesus was dead. So, Jesus is dead. You've got to get rid of the body one way or another. So, Pilate told Joseph he could have the body. Very unusual. Now, we don't understand time, the time crunch here, but this was after 3 o'clock in the afternoon. This was Friday. Sabbath begins at sundown. Nothing happens after Sabbath. There's nobody touches a body. No body is buried. Uh, nothing happens. So Joseph was in a time crunch. And so in that time frame, probably in a three-hour time frame, he had to get permission. He, as we're going to read the next part of the text, he gets, takes the body off the cross and he has to have it buried before the sun goes down. So this was a, a rush. So he brought a long sheet of linen cloth. 
He took Jesus' body down from the cross. I'm assuming he had help. Um, he wrapped it in cloth and carried it and laid it in a tomb that had been carved out of the rock, uh, his tomb, for his family. And obviously, he probably had to help. It'd be hard to carry a, a dead body. And then a stone was rolled in front of the entrance. End of story, right? Now, significantly, a couple of the ladies followed along and watched what was happening. So the text tells us Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid, okay? Like if you've been to a funeral, my wife went to a funeral this week at a graveside. She knows where her aunt is buried. Well, they knew where Jesus, most people probably weren't aware, but they were aware. Now, I don't know how many fantasy fans we have. You like to read fantasy or what? Yeah, okay, a couple of hands. Um, I have a f favorite fantasy writer, it's by Tolkien, one of the originals, and I think some of the greatest fiction literature ever written was The Lord of the Rings. Well, there's a uh, couple of main characters, Frodo and Sam, a couple others on this pilgrimage with this ring. Anyway, and there's a, a, a guy by the name of Gandalf, in and near the end of the story, uh, Sam thinks uh, Gandalf is dead, and then he thinks he dies, and then he comes too. And I just want to read you something here because it has this wonderful line in here. Gandalf, this is Sam speaking, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. But I'm not. Now here's the, here's the line. Is everything sad going to come untrue? Not be sad anymore. That's what happened in the story, if you know the story, for them. And we could ask that if we're these ladies, as we're going to see, they're going to come to their tomb. Could it be possible that everything sad is going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? So let's get back to the text. Saturday evening, Jesus is buried. Saturday evening comes, the Sabbath is over, right? Sabbath ended. So Mary, Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome went out and purchased burial spices. Why would they buy burial spices? Because Jesus was dead. Nobody expected him to come back to life. So what do you do for a dead body? You anoint it with burial spices. So that's what they did. So this was Saturday night, too late and too dark to go to the tomb. So, what are they going to do? Text goes on. Early, very early on Sunday morning, as soon as it was light, they went to the tomb to anoint the body with these spices they had bought. Now, I love how, how uh, the Scripture uh, lets us in on the skepticism or the doubt or unbelief of, of these main characters. But then they had a thought. Now, you have to understand, they were grieving, and maybe they just didn't think it through. It says, on the way, they ask each other, well, who will roll away the stone for us? From the entrance of the tomb, how are we going to anoint the body with the stone in the way? But they continued on, and I guess when they got there, maybe they see if they could find somebody to help them. I don't know what they were thinking. But as they arrived, as most of you know, they looked up. They saw the stone, which is very large, already gone, already moved, rolled away. 
So I don't know about you, I don't know if I would have went in or not, but that's what the reason they went there to anoint the body, so they went in. And they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. Now, backtrack a little bit. Why was the stone moved away? Did Jesus need it moved to get out? No. We can see, see later, stone walls weren't a hindrance to a resurrected body. This was so people could get in. And so, they get in, they see this man. The Scripture tells us what about this man. Well, uh, He's an angel. Texts would tell us it's an angel. Now, different texts say there was two. Mark says there's one. I like the difference in stories because if you told us, you and I experienced the same thing, we told the story, they wouldn't be identical. So there was probably two there. The lady, Peter just mentioned one. The women were shocked. That's an understatement, right? <laughs> the body was gone. We don't know what's happened. They didn't really believe it was resurrected. They believed somebody stole it. But the man talks to him. He says, don't be alarmed. That's always the response of angels when people meet him because they're evidently a little scary. <laughs> You're looking for not any Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the one that was crucified a couple of days ago, right? And they're probably nodding their heads. Yeah, that's why we're here. He isn't here. Well, duh, I, I see that. Um, he is risen from the dead. I don't even know if they realized what he said. They just knew he wasn't there. He said, look, look, look where they laid his body. It's gone. So they're bewildered. They're confused. They're not sure what happened. So the angel gives them instructions. Here's the instructions. Now go tell his disciples, including Peter. Well, wait a minute. Isn't Peter one of the disciples? Well, what did we just find out about last week about Peter and his relationship with Jesus? He had denied him three times. So make sure you understand that Jesus wants to see Peter, too. He might think he's excommunicated himself. And that Jesus is going ahead of him to Galilee. Where's Galilee? That's, that's home. He's going back home. He's going back home. Peter's and most of the disciples are from uh, Galilee. They're, they're going to back home. and Jesus meets some other places first, but eventually they, they gather together in the, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee on the beach and have breakfast together. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Having breakfast together with the resurrected Jesus. And the angel goes on and says, you will see him, you see him there with your eyes, you'll see that he's alive, and you can't see him now, but he, He's alive. Notice this, just as he told you before, he died. Peter, make sure you show up. I, I, I don't know. No, Jesus wants to see you, and if you read another account, Jesus has this encounter with Peter and says, hey, Peter, do you love, really love me? And Peter says, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, not so quick. Peter, do you really love me? <laughs> and Peter says, yeah, 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 Jesus, I love you. And then one more time Jesus said, okay, Peter, I want you to really think about this. Do you really love me? I don't think he asked, told him, well, you denied me three times, but he asked him three times. And Peter's a little frustrated at this point. I've already told you twice, Jesus, yes, 
I love you. And Peter forgave, Jesus forgave Peter. And I don't know your, your life and your circumstances. You may think you're too bad. <laughs> You've done something too horrible. But if he could forgive Peter, I think, I know, he can forgive you. Just like he told you. God always keeps his promises. Jesus always keeps his promises. So whatever Jesus has told you, I got to thinking about this uh, as this week. When I was 17, my sister is here, I couldn't believe that God wanted me to go become a pastor. That was the last thing on my mind. I loved Jesus and I loved church, but I didn't have the makeup to be a pastor. But God said, yeah, that's what I want you to do. And so I obeyed. And now I'm getting near the end of my life, or the end of my ministry, and I'm thinking, okay, was there a better way I could have spent the last 40 years? No. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> you fulfilled your promise to me. So, back to our original question. What happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object? Here's my answer, and our physics professor said that was good. <laughs> he confirmed it. One is revealed to be less than it claims. Now, he told me there'd be a lot of calculus involved, <laughs> but we're not going to do calculus this morning. <laughs> One is revealed to be less than it claims. One, either it wasn't unstoppable or it wasn't immovable. Was sin immovable? The empty tomb said, no, sin, you are defeated. Jesus, I'm unstoppable. Nothing stops Jesus. What sin tried to do to Jesus, he tr tries to do to you and I. And it does kill our bodies, but it doesn't have to kill our spirit, our relationship with God. And so Peter, later, he's uh, earlier probably, uh, but later in Scripture we read this. Peter's account of explaining this. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you and me, all of us, from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors, a life disconnected from God. Now, how did, he, how did he pay for it? It was not silver or gold which loses their value. It was the precious blood of Christ. The sinless, and we don't talk about that a lot. One of the most amazing miracles of Jesus' life was the fact that for 33 years he didn't sin. Can you imagine? Most of us can't go a day, can we? The sinless, spotless Lamb of God. True story. A young man, uh, his father was a police officer and he dies, and um, the police department decided to auction off his police car, his cruiser. So the son thought this would be a good way to honor his dad is to buy his cruiser, but he didn't have a lot of money, so he scraped up what money he could to buy this cruiser. He goes to the auction, and, and it didn't take long before the cost of the car got way above what he could afford. So he's, he's dejected, and, he's, and the car is sold, and the man is given the keys, and he begins to walk away, and the man said, wait a minute, son, wait a minute. You're the son of the officer's car, this is? He said, yes, I am. He said, I, I want to give you the keys. I bought this car for you. 
That's a small thing compared to the cost that Jesus paid for you and I. So something happened to change everything. The tomb was empty. I listened to a song a couple times yesterday that I want to share with you. There's some lines in here that really touched me, and maybe it'll touch you. Phil Wickham's song called Living Hope. Um, Go home and listen to it this afternoon. Then came the morning that sealed the promise. That first Easter morning. Your, Jesus' buried body began to breathe. Can you imagine those lungs beginning to breathe? Out of the silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. Jesus, yours is the victory. The chorus goes like this. Hallelujah. Praise the one who set me free. Hallelujah. Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Christianity is the only religion that follows a living Savior. God's not far. God is close. And everyone is invited. So let me give you a think about this week. How about your Jesus? Whether you're a Jesus follower or not, is your Jesus unstoppable? We're going to start a new series next week about how to hear God and in We're talking about a parable, this story Jesus told. If you'd like to read it ahead of time, it's in Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 15. So let me pray with you and I'll let you go. Uh, Father God, uh, every Sunday is a celebration of the empty tomb, but Easter just uh, uh, amps it up. Uh, We can't imagine the confusion and then eventually excitement of those early disciples that two days earlier had lost all hope. And Father God, we're so thankful we're on the other side of this, and we've seen your church prosper hundreds of years without even these story, uh, Scripture written stories, but we thank you that we have the written Scriptures, and we can believe it not because they're in what we call the Bible, but because these are eyewitness accounts of what happened. And there's no secular writings from the first century that, that, that contradict them. They said, no, you're all just, just made this up. And so, what's the ramification for each of us that this man, Jesus, was truly God, truly sinless, truly died, and yet resurrected and came back to life? Sin was defeated. We, we are all free to have a relationship with you, God, that Jesus allows us to be spotless in your presence. But we need to accept that gift. We thank you it's available to everyone. And we pray for anyone that's listening or watching that has not accepted that gift, that they would do that now. Just say, yes, Jesus, I believe. (laughs) Help my unbelief. And Father God, most of us here and most of us watching probably made that decision, in my case, many years ago. We thank you for that privilege of that relationship. We privilege to having forgiveness like Peter from maybe the, the worst of things. And yes, our bodies are dying, but our spirits are being renewed each day. And one day we'll leave this earth and be in your presence 
we too will have resurrected bodies. How exciting is that? And we thank you that you always keep your promise, so we have assurance that this will happen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lamb of God. In your name we pray. Amen.